is the Pariah Podcast, written and read by me, Philip Carroll. Episode 16, Prophecies, Preparations, and Off to Camp. At times it was difficult for Nick to maintain his hatred for his core leader. Keo's natural amiability and his unconditional acceptance of others made him a decent person. Though they were both ultimately pawns on the playing board, being pushed about by some unknown hand for the player's enjoyment or benefit, they were still enemy pawns, and one could not succeed while the other remained in play. If Nick and Keo had grown up together, they probably would have been friends, but they didn't, and it was Keo's very existence that brought on the death of Nick's parents, had the other boy not become a threat his father and mother would not have died at his own hand. Though he would have been left to scrape out a living as a street orphan without them, murdering his own family would have been avoided. Still, kings and queens and wizards and knights all move about the board, and with each of their moves, the pawns were shifted as well. How long would he remain a pawn? Was Keo in fact a pawn as well, or something much more powerful in disguise or in embryo? If Nick could figure out a way to eliminate the boy sooner, rather than later, he wouldn't have to find out. He had to speak with the oracles. It was a year or more since he last summoned them. They could tell him what his next step should be. But trying to blend in with the rest of the trainees had complicated his opportunity to communicate with them. Keo had assigned him a leadership role. As a link leader, his privacy was severely impacted. He liked the attention and honor and respect of his link members. However, the continual delegation of assignments and reports from link members made it impossible to experiment with magic or counsel with the oracles. It had taken him until the winter solstice to develop a rune which would seal off the back common room and create an illusion of unimportance on the doors so that no one would find it odd that they couldn't open them. The second guard had just reported the end of his shift and shuffled back to his room. Nick sat on the edge of his cot, waiting for his roommate's breathing to return to the even rhythm of deep sleep. He had two hours before the next shift change, the last shift when the others tended to wake on their own. The third shift was the most silent time of the night. One room on each side of the hall, both unoccupied, separated the back common room from the closest sleeping core member. With his sand tray beneath one arm and a lidded jar of chicken bones in his hand, he padded silently to the end of the long, narrow building. Nick assembled the sand tray in the middle of the wooden floor, tipped the sand from the vial and spread it smooth with the stylus. He sprinkled water from another vial, Disappointed by the empty sloshing within, he wouldn't have many more runes drawn from this holy water. He drew the rune, another of his own discoveries, a combination of stone rampart and silent tomb. Nothing changed in the air of the room, though he was certain the spell had taken effect. He drew wool cloak in the upper corner of the sand and twisted the lid from his jar of bones. He drew his father's finger digit from a small pouch he hung around his neck the lock of his mother's hair still twined securely around it, and added it to the jar. A northern witch he had met in his exploration of the coastal swamps had told him that this was not how a seer calls the oracles. 
She subsequently watched in amazement as he did, and then refused to discuss it after they appeared with clarity and power. Nick shook the jar of bones three times and then dumped the contents onto the floor where he knelt. Almost before the last bits had rolled to a stop, Nick scraped the sundry bone shards away from his parental talisman, forming an open circle, a hand's width around it. Also, counter to traditional northern witchcraft, Nick had inscribed runes into larger pieces of bone. Most of these fragments lay face down, hiding the inscriptions. He took a deep breath to settle himself as he took in those runes which had revealed themselves in the casting. Not all of the runes had yet found their meaning. Some he had designed himself without intention, waiting for the understanding to come over time. Endurance, passing seasons, stealth like a cat, companionship and hatred. Nick whispered, reading each visible rune. The first was clear, which caused him frustration. The time was not right. He had to wait and be stealthy. But the latter two, companionship and hatred... In Nick's mind and interpretation, these two could not go together. If he could just turn the first one, a quarter turn, to the sunset, companionship would become alliance. He could form an alliance with someone he hated. Companionship implied honesty and trust. No matter which direction he turned hatred, its meaning wouldn't change. He couldn't turn the runes. He knew that. Once fallen from the jar and directed by the talisman, he couldn't alter their placement, only interpret it. The unmarked bones offered no insight. Hopefully, the oracles would arrive soon and shed some light on the arrangement. There was no set time in which they would appear. It might be minutes, or they may take hours. If it turned out to be the latter, Nick would have to abandon the effort and try again another time. Smoky blue light emanated from the talisman, expanded and stretched until two narrow forms, like ethereal pillars, reached from floor to ceiling. Their elongated faces contorted and morphed, uttering soundless warnings until ghastly wind filled their incorporeal lungs. Four short riddles and their prophecy was complete. In a single breath they were gone. Their message remained. The moment of action is a pinpoint on the night sky. Opportunity passes like a fly over the midden. Love your enemies and murder your friends. The sequence is precise and the appropriate moment for domination. An egg and a creature will come first. The sun breaks on a black horizon, giving birth to both creatures, night and day. The creature must be born as day opens to grow into the demon that rules the night. Day and night cannot exist together. The one destroys the other without consideration or regret, yet neither is more powerful. Thus they rule side by side. A few hours later, Nick stood at the head of his link, the column of trainees spaced evenly behind him. They waited on the lieutenant for morning inspection and roll call. Corps leader Noshane spoke to each link leader in order, taking their report. Link leader Waterside, Noshani began, but stopped, biting his lower lip. Nick, you look tired. Are you all right? Yes, Corps leader. It was my night to take guard reports. I don't get back to sleep easily between them. I should be right again tomorrow. It's not a problem. He should have known Keo would recognize the exhaustion associated with magical exertion, whether or not he knew what it represented. 
Keel was perceptive, too perceptive. And what had Nick learned about him from the oracles? Not much yet. Nick had learned through experience that the prophecies were like a dream, in reverse. A dream often seems clear and detailed as the person experiences it, but fades rapidly to only a few events or maybe just a feeling. The vision of the oracles, on the other hand, initially left him with vague images, the words blurred together. As time passes, the images refine and the words sort themselves into order, revealing depth and complexity. The only impressions from the morning hours were that he must work together with Keo, his enemy, and that he must be watchful so as not to miss important events. Keo was speaking to him. He missed most of what he had said. So, if you need to sit out from some of the classes today, let me know. Okay, sure, Nick said. Here comes the lieutenant. Thanks, Keo nodded a friendly salute and took his place at the head of the corps. A relationship with Keo was not the only duality Nick struggled to understand since coming to the Creature Handler training camp. Much of his former life was characterized by isolation and rejection. Here, he was readily accepted by the other trainees as an equal, just another boy waiting to find his egg and raise an empathic companion. He was here among them. At this point, they couldn't know he was a fraud who had used magic to position himself among the legitimate creature handlers to learn the weaknesses of their core leader and eventually destroy him. What would happen when he didn't find an egg to care for and hatch and raise it as his companion creature? The eggs were said to call out to their companions, empathically guiding the trainee into the waters of the swamp to dig through the muck and mud until they found the living treasure. Nick was an imposter. There would be no egg in the swamp to call to him. Without an egg and subsequent creature, would he be sent away to the military or civil service? They could send him, but he wouldn't go. He could work that out with magic. On the other hand, too many people knew him now, and when he failed to find an egg, they would all know that too. There would be too many to convince, magically, that he belonged here even without an egg to raise. As Lieutenant Gorley dismissed the company for sword practice and then breakfast, the sky above the distant, impenetrable mountains was already fading from purple to gray, a sign that the spring equinox would soon be at hand and the trainees would be in the swamps searching for their creature eggs. Cold, dry weather of the high plains winter gradually warmed to the wet and soggy days approaching spring equinox. With the change in the weather came talk of going to the swamps and collecting their eggs. Drill and weapon work were all but impossible in the sticky mud of late winter and as it rained almost every day. Most classes were held indoors. There were classes on egg size and their potential contents. There was a class on the route to the Midland Swamps and where they would stay during the ten days preparing for the equinoxial hunt. There were classes on personal hygiene and egg hygiene, classes on carrying the egg back to the camp. Discussion of the activities of the hunt and their week of preparation for it at the Central Swamp appeared to be taboo. Questions about the activities were usually met with the standard reply of, you'll learn that when you get there, or there will be plenty of time for that at the swamp. Why do you avoid answering these questions? Keo finally asked one of their trainers. What can be so secret about such a big place like the Central Swamp? 
The taciturn weapons master, whose face appeared to be hewn from an oak stump, suddenly softened, displaying rosy cheeks and far-off eyes. It's not a secret, lad. It's just special to us who have been there and found our cherished companions. Most of your training battalion leaders haven't been to the swamp and don't understand. We've tried sharing it with them in the past, and it just doesn't work. The camp commander, she has, and many of the higher ranks. But not your lieutenants or captains. They're here for a few years, and then they go back to the capital for their promotions. The sergeant's stern demeanor returned, though a spark remained in his eyes. You start me carrying on. Now, just you wait, and you'll see for yourself in no time. Ten days before the spring equinox, a contingent of trainees in their fourth year led the first years out of camp. When they returned to camp in two weeks' time, they would be considered second years, as a new contingent of trainees would be formed in the capital. For this event, these creature handlers, first class, took their eagle lions, tiger hawks, dragon dogs, and bat chucks out for their first extended flight away from the training camp. On the ground as well were the armor dogs, ferret lizards, and other non-flying creatures. Though the threats were minimal, these older, more experienced trainees protected the younger, who traveled to the swamp without weapons. Kia walked at the head of his corps, which was allowed to maintain a loose rank formation, the trainees talking with those who walked near them. They were always ready to fall into a drill formation with straight ranks and files the instant Lieutenant Gorley gave the command, which he seemed to do with much greater regularity than the other company commanders. Keo adjusted the egg sling across his chest. Having received them the day before, all the trainees struggled to position the shoulder strap and the waist belt just right so that the pouch hung along the border of their ribs, above the belly. It wasn't heavy, like it would be when it carried their egg. It was just new. The soles of his traveling boots were stiffer now, with the new half-soles to cover the holes worn through them on the march to the camp. When they got to the swamp, they would be doffed for the egg-hunting boots, thigh-high leather boots, deeply oiled and waxed to repel two weeks living in the mud and muck. Keo carried his in a small backpack together with other egg-maintenance supplies they would need to clean the egg once found and to insulate and protect it in the pouch. In the evenings of the three-day march to the hunting camp, the boys and girls were given classes on human reproduction, responsibility, and birth control, subjects they should have been trained in by their parents. However, the cadre of leaders taking the young people to the swamp knew the nature of the place. The powerfully empathic eggs all begging for companionship had an overwhelming effect on the trainees. Often the trainees turned to one another for emotional support and relief. All the trainees were instructed that babies were unwelcome in the training camp and that both participants were responsible if a girl became pregnant. They would lose their status as creature handlers and be sent to a civil service training camp in the capital where they would be able to raise their child and complete their five-year service commitment. This was enough incentive for most boys and girls to keep their emotions and desires under control. After a year of physical training, the young people were in far better condition than when they had begun the march to the camp the year before. Consequently, the three-day march to the Central Swamp wasn't the hardship their last march was. The training sergeants marched along with the trainees, 
What struck the young people as odd was that most of the trainers brought their spouses or other partners with them. For all Keo had known, these instructors had no relationships outside the training environment, much less that they had families or companions other than the animals they trained with. Many of these adults, who were stern and serious in the camp, took breaks from the tedious march. Laughing and carefree, they took their creatures into the sky or bounding across the rolling plains to perform light-hearted antics or daring feats. As soon as the battalion arrived in the egg hunting camp, the company commanders climbed into a large double-level wagon and headed back to the training camp. Succumbing to the impulsive behavior of the central swamp could result in the trainees losing some of the respect, or fear, they were held in. They would return to observe the egg hunt and to escort their trainees back to camp. The ground was firm but moist, as it hadn't rained in a week, but springtime storms could roll through at any moment and dump enough rain in a short time to cover the ground with two or three inches of water. Each of the companies set their cores up around isolated clearings in the hardwood forest that bordered on the swamp. Central to all the companies was a clearing large enough to accommodate the entire training battalion. Small buildings built on stilts with wooden walls and shingled roofs housed the staff in the central clearing and company clearings. Keel and his company found wooden platforms in the trees surrounding their company clearing. Each was raised on stilts two feet off the ground, and instead of wooden walls and shingled roofs, the platforms were open on all sides and roofed with thatched grass from the prairies around the forest. Their first task in the camp was to take prairie grass, cut the previous week by third-year creature handlers, and stacked in each of the company areas, and repair or replace the thatch over each of the platforms. Their comfort over the next week and a half could be determined by how well the thatching was done. Keo and others from the country were skilled, or at least familiar with the task, while city dwellers were used to having wood or clay tiles covering their homes. Rather than have the partnership assigned to the platform do the thatch work on their own, Keo had each link work together to ensure all platforms in their link were in good shape. They then hung mosquito netting on all sides of the platform to keep the ubiquitous pests away while they slept. The trainees were assigned platforms as they were arranged in the barracks back at the camp. However, the staff hinted that these assignments would not be enforced as the nature of the swamp made most companionships fluid and dynamic. Keo noticed his own feelings of expectation and happiness growing by the hour after they arrived. He was looking forward to talking with his friends, relaxing and learning about the egg hunt. After the evening meal, they were told to return to their platforms and remain in their company areas until called the following morning. Thick pads carried to the egg camp on wagons were rolled out on the platforms, giving the trainees a comfortable place to lay their blankets. Good night, Bree, Keo said, turning off the main trail around the company clearing and heading toward his platform. He sensed that Bree had stopped on the trail while her roommate continued on. Turning back to her, he couldn't see her face in the darkness. She laughed. Are you all by yourself on your platform? Completely, he said. There aren't any other platforms near me. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep since I've gotten used to all the noise in the barracks. You'll have to imagine the crickets are just other people snoring, Bree said. 
He took a step back down the trail toward her and waved his hand to where the swamp lay in the dark. This is amazing, isn't it? We're really at the swamp. We're going to find our eggs out there in the next week. Our lives will never be the same. So much has changed for me already, Bree said. I can't fathom what the future might bring. Keo had the odd sensation, like reliving a previously forgotten experience, but viewing it through another person's eyes, standing in two places at once. He saw himself standing in the dark and thinking Bree's thoughts? She wanted to hold him, or that he would hold her. They drew together as if magnetized. That didn't take you too long, Belinda said from further down the trail. Was her comment tinged with jealousy? Oh, Bree said as if breaking from a trance, surprised to find herself in another's arms. Good night, Bree, Keo said. She put her head on his shoulder and hugged him tightly again and said, Good night, before stepping back from him. Thanks, Bree. For a hug? Anytime, she said. Her laughter twinkled like the stars. For being a friend, Keo said, and watched the two girls go until they disappeared down the trail. Keo woke in the dark of the morning with a feeling in his stomach that radiated out through his arms and legs. It left him enervated and weak. With the thatch over his head, he couldn't tell the time from the star formations or when the sun would rise. Though the mat beneath him was as comfortable as his mattress at the barracks, he thrashed restlessly until the sky finally started to lighten. He dressed beneath his blankets and then headed to the company area. The cooks, taken from fifth-year creature handler volunteers, who would be leaving for border patrol in just a few weeks, greeted him. One of the half-dozen workers, a boy who acted as if they were old friends, asked, "'You having a hard time sleeping?' "'Yeah.' I've been awake for hours. My arms and legs are all shaky, though I don't feel really sick, Keo admitted. My money's on this one to be the first in the company to find his egg, the boy said to a girl who looked up from mixing biscuit dough. Her eyes were invisible, black in the pre-dawn haze. But she smiled, and somehow, Keo knew she had no contempt for him or the boy who spoke to him. Well, that's all well and good, Perk. But if you don't want biscuit dough in your hair... You'll get back to work, she said. A vixen goose in the trees honked, chirped a chastisement. All right, Deesra, the boy said, going to a large bowl of dough. I think that creature of mine listens to you more than it does to me. Suddenly loud honking and chirping came from where there had been only one before. Perhaps all the cooks were from the same link of vixen goose handlers. That's the nature of the swamp, the girl said teasingly. Even without the training camp's waking bells, the rest of the trainees woke and gathered in the company area to eat their breakfast all at about the same time. While the trainees ate, Senior Sergeant Malcourt called for their attention. The activity today will be to pair off with another trainee or two and walk along the edges of the marsh. After a single night sleeping near the swamp, you should begin to sense others' emotions. Today will be considered a success if you are able to identify your companions' attitudes without looking at them. Very few people will sense more than just vague emotions on the first day, unless one is projecting very strongly. The goal in future days will be to recognize a friend's empathic pulse and be able to follow it to where they are hiding in the forest. Ultimately, you will follow a pulse to your egg. Don't worry, 
by the time the egg hunt begins, you'll have had more than enough practice with your fellows that it will be simple to find your egg. They went back to their platforms and pulled on their long protective boots in case they lost their footing when getting too close to water. Keo already, much more attuned to the emotional pulses than any of the other trainees, was bombarded by the emotions from his fellows around him. Fear of failure, excitement for discovery, confusion, discouragement, and a sense of inadequacy were among the sensations that assaulted him from all sides. He recognized the personal variation of Bree's and Nick's pulses, though they stood across the clearing from him. Bree's emotion pulsed with enthusiasm, innocence, and expectation, while Nick's emanated an unrecognizable sense of darkness and despair. Keo even recognized Crystal's unique insecurities, though she stood with her core hundreds of yards away. He waited at his platform until the members of his core paired or grouped and wandered off into the forest. The cacophony of their emotions faded with the distance. Theo walked out to the assembly area. He was surprised to come across Senior Sergeant Malcourt, one of the creature handler instructors, and his wife engaged in a passionate embrace, and both were in uniform. Back at the training camp, such behavior was strictly prohibited. When in uniform, one soldier could escort another by extending his elbow to the other, taking it in her hand. But that was the limit of physical contact between any in public, including those like the Malcourts who were married. Keo's shock must have been strong enough for the two to register, and though they didn't release their embrace, they both turned to look at him. Corleader no Shani, it may be difficult to break from a year's worth of training, but we have told you the rules of fraternization are relaxed at the egg site. As soon as some of your fellow trainees begin to sense the emotive pulses, they will find it difficult to resist one another. We expect a lot of hand-holding and kissing over the next few days. The effects will wear off on the return march to the training camp, so try not to make any commitments you would find difficult to keep. Yes, Sergeant, Keo said, and went to look for Bree. Judging from the strength of the emotional pulses around the egg camp on the first day, Keo worried he would ultimately be overwhelmed by the continuous assault on his senses. One of the training sergeants described the awakening awareness that each of the trainees would experience in their first few days at the swamp would be like wandering through a dark barracks at night and recognizing the sighs and snores of their sleeping companions as they walked past. That awareness would grow stronger each day in the egg-finding camp until sounds became recognizable as the individuals that made them. For Keo, from the time he had woken that morning, the combined effect of the empathic energy from his core was more like the distant rumble of thunder during an active rainstorm. Already this morning, he had sensed others as he approached them in the woods before seeing them. They were neither a sigh nor a snore, nor were they still only a distant rumble of thunder. They were growling dogs, some of them barking or shouting for his attention, though they didn't know it themselves. Was it his imagination, or was it fact that every time he felt Nick's awareness, the boy was looking at him, and then turning away suddenly to focus on something else? It seemed to happen with alarming regularity. To put some distance between himself and the cacophony, Keo wandered toward the open water of the central lake. The ground became sodden very quickly and he sank to his ankles, though the visible water itself was more than 200 yards away. 
out there in the yards and yards of mud were the eggs that each sought. According to their instructors, there was only one for each trainee, and they would be able to hear its unique call. Turning back to the shore in the trees, he felt Bree's presence before he saw her. She exuded a sense of love and respect and companionship. Keo realized a trainee walked with her who had similar emotions of understanding, care, and compassion for Bree. With the realization, he was suddenly disappointed. Bree had found someone else. Key didn't want them to see him and think he was spying, that he was jealous of Bree's companion. Like any of the emotions, jealousy could be sensed, and Bree was already very perceptive. They walked directly toward him on the trail ahead, He slipped off the trail into the trees, careful not to stumble upon any other trainees who had sought similar seclusion. When he was far enough off the trail to be sure he wouldn't be seen, he crouched down in some brush and waited for Bree and her companion to pass. She appeared arm in arm with her roommate, Belinda. They talked as they strolled along, oblivious of their observer, oblivious of anyone else. Keo smiled. They weren't lovers but they shared a bond of love developed over the last year spent together. Through the eye of memory, Keo could see his own sisters walking arm in arm through the orchards as they used to talk of their loves and their challenges. He felt a surge of emotion for both of the girls and happiness for their friendship. Keo worked his way in a large semicircle around them, back to the trail, and turned to follow them. Arm in arm with Belinda, where minutes before he had been looking out at the lake, Bree turned as Keo approached. Keo, Bree said, it's amazing. I knew you were there. I felt your emotion as you approached. I know. I could feel you and Belinda out in the woods and followed you here. Belinda looked surprised and Keo felt a wave of disbelief from her, confirmed as she crossed her arms in front of her. It's true, Belinda, Keo said. You could say I have an aptitude for this kind of thing. You knew what I was thinking? She asked, still in awe and disbelief of the process. Not your actual thoughts, just how you're feeling. Like you're scared, comfortable, in love, or that type of thing, Keo said. I think by the time we leave here, we'll all be able to do it. Do you think they'll teach us how to mask our feelings from others, too? Belinda asked. Keo shrugged, surprised at her defensiveness. Did she want to hide something from him, or from Bree? I'm going back to camp. You two have fun, he said, watching Belinda. She looked at Bree again, who didn't seem to notice, and Keo thought he understood. Stay out of the mud. It nearly pulled my boots right off. Keo wandered up and down the trails around the camp, reaching out with his mind and touching the emotions of different people he passed. He tried isolating a single emotion from the sensual potpourri in the air around him. When he was able to bring one string of thoughts forward and push the others into the background, he switched to blocking them all out. The next logical step was to prevent his own thoughts from unnecessarily broadcasting to everyone around him. After lunch, Keo headed back in the direction where he'd last seen Bree and Belinda and hunted for them in the miasma of feelings. He found them again without much difficulty. They were mostly the same, Yet Belinda's attitude seemed more intense than before. Bree placidly and gladly took in all that went on around her. Nick! Keo recognized his link leader by his emotions beyond a grove of oak trees. 
The darkness to his feelings warned Keo that something was bothering the boy. He thought he should go talk to him. As he turned that direction, Nick hurried away. Hey, Nick, wait, Keo called to him, but he only walked faster into the trees. Keo couldn't chase after him without running the risk of twisting an ankle in the unfamiliar ground cover. Still, he felt he needed to speak with Nick to see if he could ease his mind. Keo followed a trail he knew would circle around and cross the direction Nick was headed. The trail took him through the central clearing, encircled by the four cores of the C Company. He sensed something wrong in their company, besides Nick. More specifically, someone was very upset, or afraid, and standing near his platform. He felt the discontent, but as he approached his platform, he couldn't see anyone there. Then it hit him that the feelings had a familiarity to them, just as Bree's thoughts were perceptible and recognizable through the shifting, varied mix of emotions. Thanks for listening to the Pariah Podcast. If you'd like updates on the podcast, other fiction I'm working on, or to join my monthly newsletter, where you'll get a free short story from one of my environments, go to norvaljoe.com. You'll be directed from there. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.